What's up, everybody? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning, Wisecrack's movie podcast. Show me the meaning! My name is Jared, and we're joined here by the Show Me the Meaning crew. We got Greg. What's up? And Austin. Yo. And joining us again is Claire. How's it going, Claire? Hey, I am stoked to be here. Awesome. So today we're doing a little bit of an experiment. So we've never done a documentary before, but with <laughs> with uh, all the craze happening around these two Fire Festival documentaries, we decided that we would try something new and see what a documentary for Show Me the Meaning turns out to be. So today we're covering Fire, the best party that never happened. Now this is the Netflix one, not the Hulu one, the 2019 documentary. So uh, let's go around and see what people thought about the documentary and just what people's overall awareness of this event was. Let's start with Greg. Ah, uh, okay. Um, what we thought about, I, I mean, I thought it was a, a good documentary for mm -hmm. what it was. Uh, I remember when the festival was announced, because mm -hmm. uh, I'm a hip-hop fan, and Ja Rule, Ja Rule, Jeffrey Atkins Rules. <laughs> That's his name, people. Jeffrey Atkins Rules. Uh I remember when this happened, and he's like, I'm going to start this uh, this fire thing. And I was like, oh, that's a good idea. They're going to start like a booking-type app to book famous people. And I was like, this is great. And then the festival, and I was like, wow, this is going to be like a Burning Man on an island. And then when it all just went to shit, I felt bad for Ja Rule, man. You know, really? I, I really <laughs> felt bad for Ja Rule, man. Because, uh, like, you know, he took a beating with 50. Then he went to prison. And I think this was like his redemption sort of thing. He was trying to like, this is going to be my money maker, and it just it went to shit, man. What about um, after the documentary? You still feel bad for Ja Rule? After the documentary, I still I look. I don't feel bad for anybody in the documentary except for the the Bahamian people, yeah. the people that I feel yeah. real bad for them. I feel bad for that lady, the chef lady, because she's out of like fifty G's and she paid the people. Uh, and like maybe twenty percent bad for Ja Rule, but everybody else, fuck them. <laughs> I don't feel bad for Billy. I don't feel bad for the ponytail dude with the yoga guy. I don't feel bad for him. I don't feel bad for the guy that was about to suck the dude's dick. I don't feel bad for any other people that paid money to go there. I don't feel bad. For, yeah, nobody else but the Bahamians. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Rock and roll. Yeah. All right, uh, Claire. What about you? I, I loved it. Um, I watched it as soon as it came out. And then after I heard that we were doing a show me the meaning on it, I watched it a second time. Um, so I, I kind of had different experiences the first time and the second time, but I loved it both times. I haven't seen the Hulu one. Um, I... Yeah, I, the only people I felt bad for were the Bahamians. Um, it, Greg, if it makes you feel any better, there was a really successful GoFundMe campaign um, for the woman who paid $50,000 oh, really? out of her savings. Yeah, she nice. got like $160,000. Oh, um, beautiful. Yeah. Oh, so, I love people again. One of the in, one time the internet does good. <laughs> That's yeah. awesome. All right. Like the beautiful power of white guilt. Um, yeah. <laughs> Another bumper sticker. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I loved the movie. Um, and I also really liked how unsympathetic all of the, like, the, the rich people who showed up and then, like, you know, basically just, like, wild it out on this island among a bunch of disaster tents um they were so unsympathetic and the people making the movie knew they were unsympathetic and they just leaned into that i loved the my favorite character is um the guy 
uh, what's his name? Calvin Wells, the financier who had nothing to do with Fire Festival, except that when he first heard about it, he was like, mm, I don't like this. I have a bunch of money. I'm going to become like a private detective and send drones over the island to take photos and set up a fire fraud Twitter and then yeah. like a website. And I'm going to make it my personal rich guy mission to take down Fire Festival. And I feel like that didn't get enough attention, but I really liked that guy. He's like he's like his own image of Batman. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Austin, what did you think? Um, yeah, I mean, I as a documentary, as a piece of filmmaking, I'm kind of like, yeah, it's a, it's a standard documentary, like you know, to blow my fucking hair back. But yeah, it was cool. It was interesting. Um, I knew about the fire festival from the sort of cursory blowback that I got just from social media as it was falling apart. I didn't know much about it in the buildup. Um, you know, I'm not a huge, even though I'm on Twitter and I'm relatively active, I'm, I'm less like, I don't know, I receive less information than I kind of give out, if that makes sense. I kind of go on, I do my thing, I answer notifications and that's kind of it. I don't filter through too much and I don't follow a lot of influencers and celebs and shit like that. So I had no clue about like the orange marketing thing and the promo of it and all that stuff. So that stuff I found to be kind of interesting how the power of social media was harnessed by these influencers and shit like that. Um, but I actually, I have a weird take on the documentary. I actually think it's a really dangerous documentary from the perspective that it kind of makes you think that the real problem with all of this was just that one single guy was this like super smart huckster. He confused everybody and he tricked everybody and he's just such a great salesman that he's like the one bad guy but everybody else is really innocent. And it made me think, especially after watching the Hulu documentary, that the Netflix documentary is really about supporting the class action lawsuit. So. I just mm. felt like a lot of those people that were like, oh, we're so innocent and whatnot. We didn't know what we were getting to. I'm like, guys, you're all fucking complicit. You know, like, I'm sorry. And I, I especially felt that after watching the Hulu documentary that doesn't have the same tone to me. Um, it has a very different tone. I actually like the Netflix documentary better for other reasons, but I think the Hulu documentary makes it kind of presents a different picture. And then what I think I get at the end of all of it is that I start to think that um, that really the problem isn't just that one single guy, you know, kind of duped everybody and committed fraud, but that there's like a fraudulent system. And uh, and I don't know, it just kind of it seems to like absolve everybody else from everything. So I don't know, I kind of thought it was it, I think it's a really interesting, but kind of from a from an ideological perspective, I think it's kind of dangerous. Yeah, the the Hulu documentary definitely hints a little bit more at that at the end. They do say that everyone is complicit. And then at the end of the day, right. everyone just kept on telling him yes, because they wanted to get their money. Yep. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> they yeah. all deserve but, like, to go Netflix to jail. I kind of disagree makes you, like, a little pat, bit. The Netflix documentary makes you pat yourself on the back a little bit and be like, oh, good. As long as I'm not intentionally defrauding people, then I'm okay. But like everybody else, like that's how I felt the Netflix documentary made it seem. I, I, I disagree with that. Um, I want to hit, yep. I think that the Netflix documentary um, gives its viewers a little bit of credit as to being smart and picking up on things. Um, when they juxtapose somebody saying, like a Andy King, that um, the older guy is saying, uh, I just was so filled with guilt about did I abandon, you know, my colleagues? Um, and then it, you know, I, I think after that, it cuts straight to an interview with one of the Bah uh, Bahamians who was really screwed over. Um, you see that this person who 
only feels guilty about how he abandoned his other fraudster friends and doesn't feel guilty about the rest of the situation, you can see that without them telling you. And I think that's true for a lot of the other parts of the documentary where, you know, we see everyone saying like, oh, he's the smartest guy in the room. We have this phone call full of smart people. Oh, we're so so smart. Like we're good. You know, all these people like we're good guys. I don't think the documentary is saying or even trying to get you to believe that everyone else involved was good or even neutral people. I think that it's presenting the way that they understood it to happen and letting the viewers come to the pretty natural conclusion that this these are a load of, of really fucked up individuals. And yeah, I, I, I just want to give it a little bit more credit. Even at that level, though, do you not do you not worry, though, that that it doesn't really do anything. Like at the end of the day, there's going to be another fire fest. And as a matter of fact, all it makes you think is as long as we do it right this time, then we don't have to worry about it. As long as we're not intentionally defrauding people, then you can pat yourself on the back and you're absolved from any potential damage that lifestyle porn culture might have on the greater popular image. Like that's my concern. Maybe I misunderstood you. I, I thought that you were saying that the problem uh, was that it presents the rest of the people involved as not actually being as at fault as Billy was. Um, and, and that was where I was disagreeing. So maybe I misunderstood what you were saying. Yeah. No, I think it's both is, is my thing. It's like partly. I mean, I, like, I yeah. do think that. Go ahead, Jared. I don't think the documentary is making is going to change anybody's perspective on. First of all, I don't even think Billy is going to get. Uh, him going to prison, he's not going to get any better. Prison is not going to rehabilitate him. If anything, these documentaries turn him out, like kind of make him into some sort of a legend in yep. some perverse Absolutely. way. Absolutely, he's going to get another deal as soon as he gets out. A hundred. He can't be this. He he's banned from being like a CEO of any company, That's but it fine. doesn't matter. He'll yeah. do some sort of proxy thing. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so I I agree that in the same it's interesting how the documentary will point out how influencer culture and everything. Uh, brings in like this cynicism about how people experience things but at the same time like this documentary is in a sense no different the documentary is we all watch it because we love to see this train crash into the mountain yep. we all love to see this uh you know this guy who is basically like scarface for like the tech generation <laughs> you know we we'd love to see his rise and fall so anyway i do, do any of you guys know anybody who went to the festival God, none I mean, of my friends are that rich. Yeah, I mean, I just just influencers that I'm connected with, but nobody that I know personally. Yeah, I have a friend who uh, went. Oh yeah. Uh, but he, first of all, this is more of a like uh, it's weird. I have very little access or, or connection to this this culture of people who actually feel Instagram FOMO, like uh, you know, or who really follow Bella Hadid and all these Instagram people and really look at their life as if it's something that really happens and is really something that needs to be emulated. And I wish my life, like, I, I don't, I feel like I don't know anybody who's that deep into, into what the documentaries are calling millennial culture. But I have this one friend who I'm very close with who is super deep into that. And it's mm. his roommate who went to Fire Festival. And we're still close. We have like nothing in common anymore because I've known this guy since I was in sixth grade, but we're still close. And actually, 
you know, personal anecdote, but those are the friendships I value the most. It's like through time, we now no longer have anything in common, but we still have that bond. Yeah. Um, but he, so this guy went, but he never got out of the airport. By the time he landed in the Bahamas, he heard that all the shit was going down. And so he just stayed in the airport and he never actually got to the island and he oh. never actually, okay. like, you know, started, so he did, he didn't, didn't experience the, the Lord of the Flies yeah. element or anything <laughs> did like that. Did he get locked in the airport? He did, yeah. I How was, long was he curious about why they did that. Why did they? Why did they lock them in? They explain it know. a little bit more you in know, the Hulu I, I, documentary. It's because they don't want people wandering around the airport, and they they couldn't have people like off the island because you know there are all kinds of like visa restrictions and shit like that. And at this point, you've got immigration involved, and so they're trying to figure out what's going on. And then they also didn't want people running around. They're all fucking hammered and drunk at this point after drinking all day. So they didn't want people running around that were drunk and smoking cigarettes by like you know like gasoline containers and shit. So. It was partly because of that. Fair. Yeah, I heard all this stuff secondhand, but um, I liked the documentary a lot. I felt it was extremely engaging. When the shit starts hitting the fan, you can't look away. It's just <laughs> too gratifying to watch, and you're just like, every time something goes wrong, you're just like, ooh, god damn, like, how bad could this possibly be? You know, the one thing that I actually looked up the weather in the Bahamas around that time, and I was like, they didn't even mention how disgustingly hot and how many bugs there were and stuff like that. I just like there's even more misery that's untapped there. They mentioned um, it once when that that pilot guy who was maybe the real yeah. hero of this whole thing, the guy who taught himself <laughs> to fly on Microsoft Flight Simulator. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Remember, he slept Jeez. in a tent with his wife and he was like, this is unbearable. Uh, yep. That was the one kind of picture we got of how ridiculously hot and buggy and, you know, un- unlivable it was intense um but yeah yeah that guy props to that guy props to that guy the reason why i wanted to cover this movie and kind of take our first stab at a documentary is because i was pretty profound there's something about this story of this happening resonates a lot clearly just with how popular it is but also i feel like it made me think that this is you know like you could say that the social network was like the facebook movie because the social network made zuckerberg the personification of Facebook. So like just as Facebook offered connection with no real intimacy, so too could the Zuckerberg character only alienate his friends and fail to establish any true connection. And I think that like this story is like the potential to be that, but about Instagram. The Instagram story. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like Billy McFarland is someone who must pathologically project success just as people are always projecting an idealized life on Instagram. So I'm like, Aaron Sorkin needs to write the fire festival instagram movie <laughs> like the real movie yeah 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 That'd be good. uh so that's what i thought was really interesting and then also the most interesting thing about the documentary is how it was uh ended and how they kind of framed the conclusion of it especially the netflix one uh so just quote this vice writer so she says it dovetails really nicely with news stories that have come out since i was reading about a company in Russia that will now sell people three hours to do a photo shoot on a private jet that's just parked on the tarmac. They never actually leave, but they get to take the picture looking out the window and pretending they're living this lifestyle and that they're successful. And um, so I want to kind of, after the recap, I want to go into a little bit about millennial culture, about these like simulated experiences. And maybe if Austin and Claire are down about it, we'll talk about a little bit of hyper-reality. Um, <laughs> all right, so let's go into a little bit of a recap. So 25-year-old entrepreneur Billy McFarlane starts a tech startup with Ja Rule called Fire that is essentially the Airbnb of booking talent. 
As another arm of the company and marketing effort, Ja and Billy decide to start a music festival on a remote island in the Bahamas once owned by Pablo Escobar. With the help of a social media company called Fuck Jerry and a gaggle of Instagram's most famous models, Billy makes a video promising a luxury experience complete with music, models, and palatial lodgings on the Sublime Island. But... None of this happens. They have to move islands, they can't fulfill any of their promised accommodations, never mind real meals, and when their paying customers arrive, things quickly descend into a Lord of the Flies situation. The festival is cancelled before even a single note of music is played, and it turns out Billy was defrauding investors the whole time. After another attempt at scamming people, Billy is sentenced to six years in prison. End of movie. This is Jess Betancourt, the host of DNA ID, the only true crime podcast that exclusively covers cases solved using forensic genealogy. DNA ID goes behind the headlines to answer your questions about this remarkable new crime-solving tool, how it works, how cases are selected, why the cases were unsolved for so long, and how the justice system is addressing it. I include input from law enforcement to give you the inside scoop that we all crave with a straightforward, no-nonsense delivery. You can find DNA ID on any podcast platform. Episodes come out weekly on Mondays. Somebody wrote, why isn't Ja Rule getting heat, heat for this? Look, man, Ja Rule already went to jail. 50 destroyed his career. Well, <laughs> at the end of the, the Hulu documentary, apparently Ja Rule went on some sort of a radio show. Really? Where he, it, the whole premise of the radio show is him getting drunk with these two other things. And <laughs> yeah. he got too drunk to where he incriminated himself. Uh, and now. <laughs> is he going to go to jail soon? Well, he he, he's a defendant in another case uh, about the fire Festival that's pending. Uh, he's going to jail. I mean, all those guys should go to jail. Me, personally, I think I think everybody should go to jail. I mean, we saw in that phone call at the end when um, it was it was Ja who was saying, oh, yeah. well, you know, we shouldn't call this fraud. I think we can call it false advertising. False advertising. And <laughs> it, it kind of showed that even if he wasn't in the, like, minute-to-minute of Fire Festival, he was complicit in it in a way that True. doesn't feel nice. True. Oh, Ja Rule. Yeah. <laughs> Are you guys familiar with the term that's coming uh, floating around called hustle porn? Hustle porn. Yeah. No. It's not a type of porn. There's of a really good not. there's a really good article. <laughs> yeah, there's a really good article that was just written in the New York Times about this. It's all about the culture of, you know, Hustle, it's Monday. Instead of thank God it's Friday, it's thank God it's Monday. And okay. I'm killing oh, it. I, di- and... I did read yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. Really good article. Yeah, it's that yeah, shit. Yeah, it's by... We're all talking about the same article, and uh, this article made me think of the Fire Festival, and it's an article by Aaron Griffith. It's called, Why Are Young People Pretending to Love Work? And uh, it's crazy. So she says, in the new work culture, enduring or even merely liking one's job is not enough. Workers should love what they do and then promise that love on social media, thus fusing their identities to that of their employers. Why else would LinkedIn build its own version of Snapchat stories? There's something about this hustle culture and the fact that being an entrepreneur, like you even see this with the whole Soldier Boy thing. You've been following that, of like, I have. yeah, <laughs> of course I have. You guys know what I'm talking about, Claire and Austin. That he keeps on starting these new companies that are like basically illegal. No. <laughs> There's this thing. It's really weird, and I think it's a really toxic, bad thing when being an entrepreneur has this very hollow trendiness to it to where people will either pretend they're making money moves or just wear that as a facade or basically, in this case, just defraud people and ruin people's lives to just so that you can pretend that you're cool because cool people are people that start businesses, Jared, I guess. Nothing's real anymore. So so I'm at my Nothing. gym the other day, 
And up on the wall is a quote from Jerry Rice that says something along the lines of like, today I'm going to do my best so that tomorrow I'm like better than the next guy or whatever. Or something like that, you know, like striving for excellence. And then there's another quote on the other wall from like The Rock. And it's about like, you know, hustling and shit like that. And I was thinking to myself, especially in light of this fire documentary and this hustle porn culture. And there was this advertisement campaign from this one company a couple of years or maybe a year and a half ago that was like, I'm tired. I haven't slept or whatever. And I'm, I, I couldn't want anything else or whatever. And it was like, you know, hustle your ass off kind of shit. And people are like, what the fuck, man? You're just celebrating burnout society and burnout culture. Um, but so I'm sitting there thinking, I'm like, wait a second. So when Jerry Rice says it, or when Michael Jordan says it, you know, or like when some, you know, uh, some person who has excelled at some level says like, you know, the way that I did it was I just locked myself in my room and I just worked my ass off every day and, uh, and, I, and I dedicated myself to it and I sacrificed family or whatever else. I think we look at that like, man, I too can be a Jerry Rice or I too can be the celebrity, but since I don't have the physical skills of Jerry Rice, I'm going to do it as a mid-level manager for my marketing firm. And then it's like Schmidt in the house from New Girl. What? You know, it's like, I don't think it's the same thing. It's like this celebrated, valorized mediocrity, but it's all through the lens of just trying to pretend that you're hustling and making money and making moves and whatever. But you're not. And this is the culture that I think, I mean, part of it that Billy really took advantage of and that he himself had to like pathologically emulate. Like that's the thing is that, in the, in the Hulu documentary, again, it makes it seem like this guy had this narrative of success that was following him his whole life. Everyone said that this guy, he's got the smile, man. He's going to make it big. And when you believe that that is your identity, that you it's your right, your birthright to succeed, that whenever – that you're going to do anything. You're going to step over anybody. You're going to ruin anyone's life just to make sure that you maintain your identity as somebody who's worth $50 million by the time they're 25 or what else, whatever he was saying to people. Yeah. Um, there's another really great uh, quote from Aaron Griffith. So millennials, Mrs. Peterson argues, are just desperately striving to meet their own high expectations. An entire generation was raised to expect that good grades and extracurricular overachievement would reward them with fulfilling jobs and feed their passions. Instead, they wound up with precarious, meaningless work and a mountain of student loan debt. And so posing as a rise and grinder, lusty for Monday mornings, starts to make sense as a kind of defense mechanism. And I feel like for all the people who spent way too much money on the Fire Festival, including my friend that went, he's not rich. Yeah. But if you looked at his Instagram, he wants you to think that he is. Of course. Um, that this this is the this is the defense mechanism, and and even if Fire Festival or Magnesis, his previous company, was meant only for elites, there's not enough big enough market for that. He's just trying to get. He's just trying to capitalize on this cultural moment of what is cool. Yeah. Posers. I Posers. mean, gro- growing up. When when I grew up in the uh, 80s, early 90s, if you were a poser, you were like the worst. Oh, yeah. You were the worst. But now it's just a generation of posers. Everybody's just fronting. Everybody's like on Instagram. You don't see no sadness on Instagram. You don't see no broke down cars. You don't see any fails on Instagram. And almost like the same thing for Twitter. It's just, it's sad, man. It's it's really sad. I You know, I feel bad for this uh this generation. I mean, it's a part of my generation too, because I, I mean, people in their 30s are doing the same dumb shit. Oh man, uh, Greg, you got to get on grad school Twitter. People, I mean, there's the very real problem of celebrating burnout, but 
you know, grad school Twitter, grad school Instagram is basically just like pictures of misery. Um, And that's that's celebrated in like a really weird way. Like, you know, it does come together with this idea of like celebrating the hustle and hustle porn and burnout culture. Um, But yeah, people celebrate being really like sad and destroyed. And Austin can probably confirm this. Really? Because it's like being an artist, right? Because it's like, oh, your dissertation isn't going to be good until you've like literally put tears and blood into it. (laughs) Yes. Is it, is it something like that? Yeah. You have to have a like blood sacrifice failure. and you have to post it on Instagram. It is so true. I mean, I would say that it extends even beyond this to Tinder and like Bumble. Are any of you guys on that shit or are you guys all loved up? Thank I'm loved up. Thank I'm loved God. up, bud. I'm sorry. <laughs> so, so I was I've on been... OkCupid okay back in like 2011. If that counts. Yeah. I... I mean, I've been I've been running the Tinder like Bumble game for years around the world because I've lived in all these different countries, right? So I've got a relatively large sample size from which to draw, and I can just say that the amount of of women that use Instagram filters in their photos has increased, I'd say, in the last year by an insane amount. Like it is so common, and apparently from when, from talking with women too, the dudes are doing it too. They're using Instagram filters to make themselves look better and to like clean out like any lines or bad skin or anything like that. You lie about your age. They lie about their career. Everyone wants to – it's like emo- a string of emojis, like a song lyric, some sort of quote about like I'm just living my dream. I'm an adventurer, especially here in Australia. I've noticed this more. Now, this is more of kind of like a travel culture, especially in Sydney. But it's like travel, adventure, drinks, and living life. I just want to be happy. No drama. And it's like – I'm like – is there a fucking script that is out there that people mm. are like, this is what you put in your bio on Tinder or Bumble? Because it's the same shit and it all fits into this like Instagram lifestyle porn hustle culture shit. You know, it's weird. Yeah. I want to go back real quick to what uh, Greg said about being a poser. I remember when I was in middle school, my mom, you know, I think the reason why that there you can't call someone out as a poser anymore. So like, here's an example. Like when I was... In middle school, my mom bought me, like, all this skater clothes just because mm-hmm. it was cheap. Yeah. And then when I went to school and the skaters – and I didn't even know – I didn't even know what the fuck – I just wanted to go home and play video games. I don't know what the fuck I was I'll doing. I'll wear this, whatever. You know? And uh, these skater kids would be like, yo, man, I haven't seen you boarding around here. Like, why are you wearing that clothes? And I was just like, oh, uh, I don't know. And they're like, aren't you, like, some kind of poser? And I felt like – I was, like, torn apart. I was like, oh, my God. I'm such a piece of shit. But, like, these days, if you're posing on Instagram – like, first of all, like People always say that, like, you know, there are no high school cliques anymore. If you're in high school now, it's like, and you don't like anyone in your school, fine, fuck it. You can go find a community on the internet. And on the internet, you can project whatever you want. So if my mom was buying me skate clothes and I took a picture of myself on Instagram. You're a no, skater. I'm a skater. Exactly. <laughs> you know, there's no one to call me out. Oh, it's the it's the worst, man. It's, it's awful. Everybody's a poser. Man, this is the fakest... Yeah, we live in a we live in a fucking fake ass uh, world. I, I feel like uh, you fucking depressed. Into the discussion on hyper reality. Yeah, the identities of Instagram becoming more real than identities in real life. Uh, it's uh, it's, it's, it's going to happen, Claire. I want to bring up one <laughs> a more article before we roll right it's into inevitable. that. It's inevitable. It's um, inevitable. You guys know uh, about pop up experiences oh, or pop up museums, like when all the like yeah. makeup and like clothing startups do like it's pop-up stores like kylie jenner's like pop-ups in la like that sort of thing mm-hmm. uh i don't know about that but for example like i just went one went to other one it was like the museum of ice cream disgusting ice cream? yes that that's okay. exa- that's an example of another one but there are other ones that are like the museum of ice cream like yeah if you go there and you can taste ice cream cool but some of them 
are just like per they're just places in which you go to take Instagram photos. Like there's nothing there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the biggest hustle ever. Yeah, and it's so there's a great article also in the New York Times called "The Existential Void of the Pop-Up Experience" by Amanda Hess. This is a great article. Um, so she says, by classifying these places as experience, their creators seem to apply that something happens here. But what? Most human experiences don't have to announce themselves as such. They just do what they do. A film tells a story. A museum facilitates meaning between the viewer and a work of art. Even a basic carnival ride produces pleasing physical sensations. But this, this is literally just a place for you to take pictures. And it is like you don't go to, like, for example, they have one called... Candytopia, an interactive candy wonderland. Now, you're not going there because you want to play with the candy. You're going there to create the simulation that you were that that you enjoyed a museum. It's it's sad to me, but I feel like this is like this is more us being old man yelling at cloud. Half of y'all are in LA. Do, do you remember uh, this past summer? Um, well, yes. there's so much to say. So much more oh, to say on this in LA. About. But um, this past summer, there was news about this private mural in, like, yeah. uh, I guess somewhere in LA, where it was guarded by security. And I guess it was supposed to be this cool mural to take Instagram photos in front of. Personally, I thought it was a pretty lame mural, as murals go. Um, but in order to take a picture in front of it, you had to. To either have twenty thousand Instagram followers or be verified on Instagram, uh, that like yeah, precious yeah. blue check mark. And um, it, I mean, I think it turned out to be like a piece of performance art, but people got really into it. And uh, mm. yeah, I think that that as a part of that pop up culture um, really speaks to how much people will um, will go to something like that, even when it's a really like kind of bad mural. Hmm. Remember in the the, the Facebook movie, uh, the network. Remember when the Winklevoss twins are talking to Zuckerberg, and he's kind of like, "What's what's the point? What's the difference between this and MySpace?" And they're like, "Exclusivity," because this is Harvard, and right. the whole idea was that if you can somehow restrict it, if you can create, if you can manufacture scarcity by saying that this is where the privilege is, or this is where the power is, or this is where the joy is, if you can do that, and if you can create that then you can charge for that and you can turn that into an economic function. And that's kind of what all of these things are doing, right, Claire? Like if you've got a check mark, you can be involved. So then people are clamoring for check marks or they want to be around other people who have them or even still it's exclusive access. It's everybody wants to be a VIP. Again, everybody wants to be Jerry Rice. But just because you got a fucking check mark and 10,000 followers because you run some sort of like cooking Instagram thing, that doesn't mean you're fucking Jerry Rice and that you're some sort of like super athlete. But that's what everyone wants to be. I, people have settled with, I want to at least seem like Jerry Rice. That's all people want. The problem, know. look, man, somebody was like, what's the problem? Give me a solution. It's your fucking phone, man. Throw this shit away. <laughs> this shit is so bad for us. I'm, I, you know, I do a show called Blame Social Media. I'm, I need to get off. I need to get off all this shit. It's turning us into cowards. It's turning us into weak human beings. Uh, just Instagram, all this social media shit is so bad for us, man. It's, we live in a fake teeth society, man. Nobody's real anymore, man. It's it's awful. I love and it's I love our phones. People, I, I like what you said. How we're cowards. I love like uh, social media beef too. Like when people talk shit over social media, but fake you know for beef. damn sure yeah. if that person saw that person in life, they'd be a fucking coward, man. 
neither one of them will say a word to no. each other. They just yeah. tweet over it. It's, it's and they're the so worst, fucking, man. They're so fucking tough online. I'm like, you fucking pussy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's yeah, man. I just think about like my dad and like you know what he, <laughs> just what he think. Like yeah, yeah, man. It, it's it's awful. <laughs> It's awful. I see. I wouldn't even go. I and mean, look, I'm very critical of social media. But I wouldn't go as far as say just throw the phone away. But I and I've brought this up on another podcast. But I just think that like, hello, people. Like we in school, we have math education, science education. We need media consumption education. No, it's it's all bad. No, it's... but like just just to have people be critical, like about the images that they consume and know, and like just to tell people that like, look. You are not supposed to look at an Instagram model and say that this is what my life should be like. This is what I should aspire to because you shouldn't because it's bullshit. I mean, but they had that before. I mean, before the Instagram picture of a model, I mean, they, it was the same thing with these magazines. I know. And I'm just saying it's way overdue. <laughs> it's <laughs> like decades overdue. It's all bad. I, I think it's a it's a power that we have that we can't control and it's just going to get even worse. I think the difference between what we have with Instagram now and what we had with the airbrushed magazine covers of yesteryear and also today is that since anybody can post on Instagram, uh, when these models post or when these influencers post, you could theoretically, of course you can't because you don't have a team running, um, you know, Adobe creative suites to make your photo perfect, but you, there's the idea that you could post that same photo. You could have that exact same experience um, and that it, it puts the onus on the individual that there's something wrong with me that I can't do this thing which is theoretically accessible to everybody whereas with a magazine cover you know most people know that I you know I'm never going to be on a magazine cover uh, most people don't even want to be in the modeling industry but even though that isn't actually separated from Instagram because we see these regular people like I had the girl who was I, I was best friends with in elementary school is now an Instagram influencer. She has, I think, like a, a hundred thousand followers or something, and she has all these like travel posts all over the place. And it, because there's this idea that anybody can do it, this random girl I went to elementary school with in Virginia Beach can, you know, be this like semi-famous influencer. It it fosters the feeling that if you're not doing it, you're doing something wrong mm. rather than the idea that, oh, this is just an industry that I'm not a part of. One of the really powerful things about what you just said, Claire, too, is that there's another element that you participate in the person who is the influencer that is supposedly above you. And it isn't just that you're clamoring because they then provide a word of encouragement back to you that is almost like encouraging your aspirations. Right. So there's also this like really nice and lovely uh, slick of camaraderie that makes you feel like Byung-Chul Han is a philosopher that I've talked about, I think, on this podcast a few times. And he says that what you have is just pure positivity all the time. And I don't mean like positivity like, hey, good job, guys, even though that is kind of it. But like in the like the literal sense that there's there's no the negative. There's no like you can't do it or there's no no. It's all just kind of like, yes, this constant injection of pleasure and joy and reinforcement and all of these other things that are kind of like, yeah, 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 yeah. And so you kind of just get locked into this even more. 
because not only are you looking at them like, man, I can aspire to that, but then you're reinforced and you're like, oh, and they tell me that I can aspire to that. Like I'm part of them. Like I'm helping them. I'm a part of this system. And so it sort of just intensifies our connection to the whole uh, cycle or the whole dynamic. You know, yeah. I read recently, I read recently, no, I, th I think you guys are totally on point. I read recently that they say that millennials, they prefer experiences to objects, which I, I thought was a good thing. You know, I mean, I would much rather take a trip yeah. than buy a car or something like totally. that. But then when I read that pop-up experience thing, I was like, okay, this all of a sudden got very cynical because if it's not a real experience or if it's just like, you know, like you mentioned online dating before. I feel like when I was on online dating in 2016 or 2017 or whatever, I couldn't tell you how many images I saw of girls in front of Machu Picchu. Right. You know, or, and exactly. I feel like it has to be likely that they literally just go there to take the pic to take the pictures and go away. My, Apparently my for girlfriend's dudes, sister, it's like wild animals, like cheetahs and lions and shit like that. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. All right, so I do want to talk, get into the super wanky stuff with hyperreality, and I want to start this with a. Uh, I, I'm reading this book. Have you guys ever read the book White Noise by Don DeLillo? So uh, in the book, I, I just started it. In the book, DeLillo describes a scenario in which a family goes to visit the most photographed barn in America, and as they approach the barn, they see five signs of the barn. Then they're saturated, like in the gift shop, with postcards, photos, and slides of the barn before they actually see it. And then one of the characters named Murray says, nobody actually sees the barn. Once you've seen the signs about the barn, it becomes impossible to see the barn. They're not here to capture the barn. They're here to capture an image. We're here to maintain one. Every photograph reinforces an aura. We only see what others see. We've agreed to be part of a collective perception. This literally colors our vision, a religious experience in a way. Like all tourism, they're taking pictures of taking pictures. And uh, this reminds me of, like, have you ever been to a concert where um, people are, like, recording the performance on their phone instead of actually <laughs> watching, watching the it, performance? Just it. Yeah. Um, I just feel like the Fire Festival is, like, this perfect crystallization of this discrepancy of um, how an image of something that doesn't even exist can create this aura or this collective perception. And uh, I feel like when... You know, everyone just bought in to this idealized image. And then once you actually get to the fire Festival, you basically are at the desert of the real, which is like um, in, in Baudrillard, he talks about how like hyper real or basically the reality that is saturated by media and all that stuff is much more attractive to us because it distracts us from the monotony of regular everyday life. It's so poetic that once they land in the shit show that is the Bahamas, they just get this wash over them of up oh, now I'm back to the shit and like the rea the the fantasy has crumbled. The fantasy of Instagram has crumbled. That's why there's something so relevant about this story that seems to really resonate with our culture as evidenced by the fact of how popular it is. And the well, funny just, thing is they're still in the fucking Bahamas. And they're complaining yeah, yeah. about it. So, yeah, it wasn't the fantasy that they thought, the Pablo Escobar Island and the private villas, but they still spent thousands of dollars to go to the fucking Bahamas, and it was awful. Like, oh, no, we're in the Bahamas on an amazing island that people would pay tens of thousands of dollars to go to if they were at the Sandals Resort just a stone's throw away from here. So there is also an irony there that they're still in luxury, globally speaking. But, but Austin, were they upset because they couldn't show off? Yes. 
You know what I mean? That's why they were upset. They weren't yeah. upset because it wasn't it wasn't the Bahamas. They were upset because now I can't show these pictures to these other losers that are that aren't here. <laughs> you no, know what I mean? Totally, yeah. That's what they were upset the, about. The real tragedy is that they couldn't take Instagram photos to make it seem like they were having a great time. Exactly. Greg, you've been reading, you've been reading psychoanalysis, Greg. That's fucking no, that's man, a good insight, just, brother. I live in L.A., man. They, <laughs> they got us, man. Yo, the government, man. They, they, it's 19... They got us, man. They got us by the balls, man. We're fucked, yo. As people. we're As human beings, we are fucked. They got us, man. We're done. One thing we're I think done. is really interesting is uh, something that one of the people in the documentary said was that fire festival did happen it happened when they were doing mm. the, the promo shoots and yeah, i thought right. that 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 really stuck with me that it wasn't that there never was a fire festival it was that when they took the the fomo inducing you know videos and pictures from the giant party that was the promo shoot People actually, those influencers, those models who were there for the promo shoot uh, and, you know, the crew really actually did get to experience um, what people wanted to experience. Sure, the bands weren't there, but the, the core experience that they were selling people, a few, like 60 people did get to experience that. So it's interesting that uh, Fire Festival both never was and was. And mm. it kind of, the, those two kind of have to coexist the and and yeah i just think that that's really interesting and that was one of maybe the most um poignant insights from the documentary that i caught and i think that ties in really nicely to what we've been talking about hey claire do you think you could even go one step further and say the fire festival only ever exists in the imaginary so like the fire festival is still going on like whenever there's some new promo for Coachella or for Tea in the Park or whatever the festival is and you have these amazingly photoshopped, beautifully graphically designed uh, marketing promo promotional materials that go all around social media, that is the quote unquote fire festival because that that's the thing. It's really it's the fantasy that's being sold and so the fire festival never was but always is. I, I I, I'm not sure if I can comment on its relationship to Coachella. You might have to explain that one a little bit more to me. It just it sounds like to me is that it's uh, the Fire Festival is this cultural icon that stands in for the discrepancy of idealized existences as perpetrated or perpetuated by uh, images on Instagram or just social media in general and the reality of a life that worships those images, which is you get hit with, you get smacked in the face by reality when you land on the Bahamas and you're sitting on a wet bed and they're, see, they're feeding you cheese sandwiches with a side salad. You know, um, that's what I'm getting from the documentary and why I think it's so interesting. Yeah, because even, even if all these influencers and shit like that, if they go to uh, this, let's say they do go to Pablo Escobar's island, that first island that they find. I can't remember what it was called, but uh, like Norman's K or something like that. Say they get there and it is, and, and everything goes off without a hitch and they do have these villas and they are living luxury. They're still not supermodels. They're still not Miranda Kerr and Ja Rule. They're still not, there's still a level at which there's an incompleteness. There's a gap between what they were sold in the promo and the reality of their lived experience. And it's that gap that I find to be most interesting. Now, it may be less of a gap, but nevertheless, there's still always going to be a gap there. And so what I wonder is, is like, 
is is Firefest, and maybe this is where I'm maybe in a way like kind of trying to criticize productively the idea that oh the Firefest really really did happen because maybe there is no really really did happen ever when it comes to these sort of like fantasies that were sold, but it's only ever existent at the level of the abstract, you know, the promotional. Well, I just want to say I think video. there's. There's there's also a gap between the video and even that party with Ja Rule on the island that the video right. was made out of. I mean, those models probably didn't give two shits about Billy McFarland and his and his thing. They're getting paid. Yep. You know, it's hey action, go have fun. You know, I mean, there's a gap there too. But it was a fantasy. Like the fucking pigs are attacking him and shit like that. The models are running. Yeah. The, like one of the models got hurt because a pig like knocked her over in the boat and shit. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also a fantasy for the guys that are selling the fantasy. Yes. You know, they thought, you know, they couldn't even they couldn't even build what Instagram what is <laughs> what they saw on Instagram by Coachella and Burning Man and everything. They had this idea in their head that they wanted to sell this, but the fantasy that they wanted to sell was too hard for them to even create. So I mean, Insta- it, it's it's just these these uh, visions that we're seeing from our fucking computer in our hand is just controlling our brains that we can't even sell what we're just. It's so fucked up, man. You know, we can't even make what we're what we're trying to sell to people. You know, like I'm I got this blueberry cupcake, but I don't even know where blueberries are. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, it's I sad. think I really agree with both of you. Um, and actually, I want to kind of almost revise my past statement because, yeah, when they were doing that shoot uh, and in the promo videos that followed from the very beginning, they were and I wish the documentary had done more with this. They were selling this image of you want to be Pablo Escobar. And there was this real attachment to Norman's Key and it being on Pablo Escobar's island. And then, of course, you know, they got kicked off because they weren't allowed to say that. Uh, But for Billy and the team and then, you know, presumably a lot of the crew and then the people who watched the video, um, it has this kind of layering effect that I I don't think starts with Pablo Escobar. Pablo Escobar probably wanted to be somebody, but he was doing his thing before Instagram, so maybe to a lesser extent. But uh, Mm. at some level, it starts with this dream of being a drug lord. And I think Mm. that's really interesting. Yeah. Because a drug lord is the most elite, right? You got all the money. <laughs> yep. you, like, the law does not apply to you. Not at all. You got the women. You know, I also think, you, you guys ever watch Silicon Valley, the show, or, yeah. like, uh, the trailers, and there's this really great juxtaposition where you're seeing these kind of nebbishy white guys walking down the hall, and in the background is Rick Ross just booming, like, some sort of, like, everyday I'm hustling thing. I feel like the the partnership of Ja Rule and Billy really draws that thing between like the ruthless hustle culture of Silicon Valley and the ruthless, you know, hustle culture of hip hop. And like both of them are bullshit in a sense. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. And and that partnership between Ja Rule and Billy is I can't quite wrap my head around it, but it's really special. It's you got a guy that's on his last leg, Ja Rule, and you got Billy that he knows he's on his last leg. You know, you got a guy that's trying to invent something and the guy that is on his last, you know, hurrah. You know what I mean? And they're both trying to come together to create something that they can't create. Well, now Ja Rule's got his own thing. What is it, Iconic or Icon? Yeah. I spent a while looking through the Icon website last night. They've got some good acts. 
I mean, you would have said the same thing about fire, but it's all bullshit, right? <laughs> well, no, that's the thing is I don't think that fire media actually was bullshit. I mean, I have no way of knowing, but from my understanding, it was actually like a pretty good idea for a booking platform and it got tanked by fire festival. Um, yeah. They should have never did the festival. Yeah. Oh, wait, Austin in the Hulu one, did it mention that they were, well, at least they lied about the success of the platform. I don't know if that meant that they lied about the talent that they had access to. Yeah, because definitely... Billy's actually interviewed in the Hulu documentary. Um, so you actually hear him talk. Well, what you hear him say is I can't comment on that basically throughout 70% right. of it. But it is really interesting yeah. that at the very end, especially, he says something like, when I was doing Magnesis, I had over 10,000 people. And they find out that actually you had like between four and 5,000 people. And he's like, and we had all these people confirmed. And actually, no, you didn't. And we had this much money. And actually, no, you didn't. And they show a little bit more. That's why I think it's called fraud fire, right? Or fire fraud. Mm -hmm. Because yeah. it, it focuses much more on like the empirical evidence for fraud than the Netflix documentary does. They just have a little bit of a different angle. But yeah, you're right. Talking about uh, Silicon Valley and the hustle nature of it, um, I, I also noticed in the Netflix documentary, people, everyone, over and over again, all these people who even had been deeply screwed over by Billy kept referring to him as this great entrepreneur. Uh, even now, I was on um, the, uh, what's his last name, McFarland? I was on the Wikipedia page for Billy McFarland, and it says Billy McFarland and in parentheses, entrepreneur. And it says up above that there's this uh, meta discussion on the Wikipedia discussion page on whether or not it should be changed from entrepreneur to fraudster, but it hasn't been changed yet. And and there's this dialogue in the documentary about, oh, he's such a great entrepreneur. He's such a good entrepreneur. And I mean, it seems like all of his businesses, and we saw this with the evidence um, of Magnesis being, you know, somewhat fraudulent, of him fudging the numbers on Fire Media, of, you know, everything he did with Fire Festival, with that VIP New York access bullshit he did when he was out on bail, Jesus Christ, that, <laughs> that this guy is like, you know, a pretty good con artist. Um, but yep. everyone, you know, always talks in this film about what a good entrepreneur he is, even though they know he's a fraud. And I start to kind of think about what does it mean to be an entrepreneur if being an entrepreneur is very tied up in how good you are defrauding people? Is there such thing as an entrepreneur in, the, in our current kind of hustle Silicon Valley tech startup culture? Can you be an entrepreneur and can that be a thing that's like value neutral or good? And that's such an open-ended question. I don't really have a way to answer that. Um, but just how often that word entrepreneur was brought up and then in seeing it on the Wikipedia page, I just, uh, I really have a lot of questions about what that term means to us now. Oh yeah. It no, means I think nothing. that's really, Every, really interesting because I think that there's a very actually unfortunately can be a thin distinction between a hustler a fraudster and an entrepreneur especially in tech when a tech company is valuated real the only thing that makes that valuation is how much someone is willing to pay for it literally these tech companies like twitter hasn't twitter still made zero dollars you know like yeah. I, I, there are tons of tech companies that are sold for billions that never made a cent in revenue those valuations are simply based on if i were to put it in a very obscene way it's like how can I convince a rich person to pay for this? And so if Billy can raise millions and then convince someone else, now granted, 
the fraudulent like fraudulently uh like over amplifying his numbers is a crime but if you take that out of consideration if he was able to just spin his actual growth in a way he could be a great entrepreneur he could take his actual real life metrics and convince a smart guy or I'm sorry, a rich guy who's got way more money than brains to buy his company for millions and millions based off the potential for growth. So I think that a lot of entrepreneurship in tech is being a very skilled hustler. Yeah. Well, it's you can expand talker, that even man. further too. Like Tesla is yeah. not profitable as a company. Amazon has years mm-hmm. when it's not profitable as a company. I'm talking about the richest man in the world runs a company that is sometimes not even profitable. So when we're talking about what an entrepreneur is, I think that somebody like Billy is able to kind of pull the wool over people's eyes because he's able to deliver. The problem is he's able to deliver because he's running a Ponzi scheme. Now, they they don't go into it as much in the Netflix documentary. They only talk about VIP access afterwards. But he was running similar schemes before he started doing Firefest. So he would sell local tickets to, like, the opera. And then in order to pay for the – and he'd, like, be like, oh, we've got, like, VIP tickets to the opera. And then apparently he would go out and just buy these bulk tickets for uh, on, like, StubHub or whatever and then just give them away. So he's taking this at a loss. But the way that he would pay for those tickets then w- was then offer VIP tickets to the Knicks, floor seats. But he would always have to go up and up and up. So the reason Fire became so interesting was because Fire was his way of selling tickets to cover for these other schemes that he had been running. So he's paying for the old ventures with some new venture by trying to kind of like uh, increase the rate or the intensity of the profit. And then, of course, you know, he runs into that wristband thing where he has to start selling those wristbands and have people front load money so that it's a cashless environment, right? And the reason he has to do that is so that he can pay for whatever it is to cover the costs of the Firefest. So he's always running this kind of shell game, this Ponzi scheme, where he's paying for the old thing with the new thing. So this is something he's been doing forever. So the reason he's viewed as a successful entrepreneur is just because he's able to deliver by running a scam. So it's Robbing not that he Peter like has Paul. this magic about him when he walks into a room. It's that he's able to walk into a room and say, I've got this money because he really does have this money and I've got this past history of success because he really does, at least on paper, even if he's fudging the numbers a little bit, because he's always able to somehow deliver by running the new scam. Well, it's both, right? I mean, he does have this magical smile. He does have insane charisma. and Does he? I didn't think. I didn't uh, think it was socially awkward. I mean, I, His smile is, he, is he, so creepy. Is he I, I doing the it, thing? Man. He's doing the thing. I mean, this stuff is taught, man. He's doing the whole, he's a tall guy. Tall guy's always, already, he's won people over by being tall. Uh, he's fast talking, and he's hella positive. And, but he sounds smart. He sounds like he knows what he's talking about. So, yeah, he's a con man. He's yeah. a con man. And he's, <laughs> I, think he's, I think he just, you know, I think he's just read the, the script on how to play the game He's probably read the book of how to win over friends, and you know, I, I just think he he's played the game, and I think people are used to like people are used to weathermen talking a certain a certain way, like today's news reporter. You know how they all have mm-hmm. that same voice. I think people are used to these super tech dudes that sound like this and look like this. Well, and the game and is money too. Up in it. If you don't yeah. have the money then it doesn't fucking matter how much charm and charisma and how many smiles and promises and how many celebrities you know. None of that matters, ultimately, unless you have the dollars. And he had the dollars. Or at least you seem to have the money. And, and like, having money is a language. You know, like, there's just something about looking in someone's eye and saying, yes, I want you to write me a check for $10 million. You know, it's not the same when everyone says it. If you say it to somebody and, like, you convince them that it's something that, 
it's not a it's not a big deal and b it's something that you deserve yeah they'll give it to you you know if you talk the same language of luxury that they'll do they'll feel comfortable it's like oh well this guy already knows what a rich lifestyle is like so obviously he knows how to charm other rich people that might buy the company that i'm investing in and stuff like that you guys are kind of making me want to be a con man it's starting to sound really good (laughs) go for it yeah i had a friend who's watching who just rewatched the movie american hustle i don't know the last time you saw this movie but that movie is even more relevant than it ever has been for a number of reasons i think that we're getting onto something really interesting about why um the billy mcfarland uh you know hustler entrepreneur con man um intersects so well with what we've been talking about with social media and influencer and Instagram culture. So Jared, you were explaining that in terms of how a tech company um, is valued, it's not on what the company is actually producing. It's on what the idea of the company is. It's future profitability. It sounds a lot like um, a, a picture of an an influencer that's that makes you feel like you could potentially I don't know I, I'm, I'm struggling to phrase it now but there's that same sort of um, connection where it's a distance from reality it creates its own reality if Twitter isn't actually producing money and I don't know if that's true or not but if, if I know this was true for Snapchat at one point yeah I don't I don't know if that's true either it, but yeah for Snapchat I know at one, point. I, at, least at one point it was true um, when if a company isn't like turning over any kinds of profits, but it ha- it is able to build this identity of what it is out of what people think it could be, there's that disconnect from the real that is parallel in a lot of ways to this very photoshopped, um, you know, posed picture of a person uh, that is miles away from what we might call reality. And maybe there's a problem with like saying that there's one thing that's reality and one thing that's not but as long as we're connecting it to this kind of Baudrillardian Baudrillardi fuck it um discussion of hyper reality <laughs> I think that does the, is this making sense that that what we see in yes. the tech companies is very similar to what we see in the influencers yeah I got I'm, I got a question you guys follow any of these Instagram models or any of these famous influencers because I only follow people I know on Instagram I do why, why are you just genuinely curious? Does it make you feel like you're on the ride with them, like that you have like this proximity to them and their lifestyle? Like what does it do for you? Uh, so most of the ones that I follow are people that I actually knew in real life at one point um, who have okay. become kind of influencers. Um, but I don't talk to a lot of these people anymore so there's no real reason i should keep following them my excuse to myself is oh well you know i i I do follow them i do follow a lot of celebrities but they're like Kristen bell who you know like takes pictures looking like a mess she's not what anyone would call like an influencer even though she is very influential and also the best person in the entire world um but but the influencers that I do follow are usually like aspirational type travel bloggers or, you know, people posing in front of murals and with these experiences. And um, it definitely has a really negative impact on me. I'll be honest about that. And uh, it, you know, seeing those photos, 
even though I have the knowledge and the background and like the conceptual toolbox to understand that what I'm seeing is not real, even though I've read interviews with some of these influencers who say that it'll be a six hour photo shoot, thousands of photos taken, and then 10 hours editing to produce this single picture that is supposed to just be a quick snapshot of my life with like an easy breezy caption that they also spent an hour workshopping. Even though I've read these interviews, even though I know these things, it's still, um, I guess it's a way, the problem of it that we talked about earlier, which is that it makes you feel like you could potentially do this thing, even if you couldn't, uh, you're part of that system. There's something kind of nice and hopeful about feeling like, oh, I could potentially do that. I could be, you know, like lounging on this like pink chair in a resort in like this beautiful part of the world. Like this could be my life. And um, it's, yeah, it's almost kind of, it's pretty embarrassing to admit that, I think. But no, it, not at all. It's something that I think a lot of people experience, that's why these people have millions of Instagram followers, is even while it's making you feel bad, it's making you feel hope. And that's the same thing that sold, you know, Cosmo and Seventeen magazines and Vogue magazines, mostly Cosmo, you know, for 50 years and still <laughs> does, is even as it's making you feel bad about it's, about yourself, it's saying, you know, there's something wrong with you, but we can fix that. And um, yeah, it sucks. It's awful. But it also... Yeah, okay, I'm going to go unfollow them all right now. No. Yeah. <laughs> no we're I, I all, does it give you we're a, all hooked. Does yeah. it give you a sense of escape from your dissertation or something like that? Just like a small little dopamine hit to keep you going for the next 30 minutes? No, it mostly just makes me, like, if anything... It makes me feel like shit. And yeah, I go onto grad like school shit. Twitter and I complain about how miserable I am. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, the impact it's had is that, you know, I spend more money on getting my hair done in like the yeah. right way and that I spend more money at Sephora and um I yeah and then I you know spend like more time researching these you know vacations to Iceland that I'm supposed to be having because everyone else is having them I also think that this is very much um tied to this distinctly millennial Gen Z phenomena of oh, you should be traveling. No one is too poor to travel. Anyone yes. can travel if you save up enough. Traveling is like this inherent like good that if you're not doing it, there's something wrong with you. And that's perpetuated by a lot of these influencers are travel bloggers and um, also by just like everyone's friends online. And I think that's, uh, there's so many problems with that culture, but it's very difficult actually to talk about the kind of aspirational aspects of magazines or of, of these influencers without talking about travel because so much of that um that influencer lifestyle like the I think the majority of them are, are are travel blogs they're about going places they're about being somebody else in a different place um and yeah I I think that that's a, a really really deeply fucked up part of millennial gen x culture is this idea that you know you should be traveling and anyone can no matter your financial situation if you just save up hard enough and don't buy don't buy don't buy starbucks make your own coffee and then you'll be able to travel to iceland right and even if you can't travel like if you're not an influencer or you're not a celebrity you can still go out on friday night to the local club and 
hashtag squad goals and look at us, we got bottle service. Well, if you can't afford bottle service, that's fine. You can still go out to the local music festival and you can still wear your cutoff jeans and your Indian head scarf or whatever and you can still pretend that you're Kendall Jenner or you can pretend that you're Leonardo DiCaprio. So there's still a way that you can translate those really high, the summum bonum, the greatest good that you see on the influencers' websites into your own life and you can somehow, or at least this is the this is what's being held over your head, is you can still derive satisfaction from it. And this is what the logic of the commodity is in capitalism. It says here, this will satisfy you. This will satisfy you. This experience will satisfy you. This group of friends or this uh, destination will satisfy you. But the problem is, is it doesn't really satisfy you because you're still just chasing a fantasy. And so then you need another fantasy and another fantasy. And it's this endlessly receding goalpost where you're constantly just chasing a phantom. And, and that's where the anxiety comes from. And it only intensifies the more saturated that sort of apparatus of receding desire becomes. Endlessly receding goalposts. God damn. Yeah. <laughs> Gonna have a happy night tonight. Oh, hella deep. Yeah, so Claire, is it just travel? It's also, I mean, if I had to guess, it's also luxury and beauty. Yeah. A beauty is you know, a big one. Um, I don't really follow, and I don't know anyone who does follow, the like... Um, uh, before she was famous for being uh, like Trump's least favorite daughter, uh, Tiffany Trump uh, was one of those people who had like the luxury Instagrams, like posting themselves in fancy cars and like, um, you know, on on the private jets, like they mentioned at the end of the documentary. I, I don't follow those people, um, mostly because that's not something that is appealing to me. Uh, I think that the, a lot of people that, who who I know uh, and who I engage with on social media and who are, I guess, part of my circle, um, none of us have any delusions that we will ever be that wealthy. That's not something that's aspirational. That's something that's ludicrous. Um, I mean, I'm getting a PhD in philosophy. I oh. hope I'll be able to, like, live well enough to, like, send my kids to college without putting them in a bunch of debt but I don't know like I'm never going to be on a private jet and so because it's just so far out of the realm of possibility that it's laughable it's not something that's interesting to me um whereas these like you know beauty blogs or travel blogs um those are something that say hey even you could do this, and that's what makes them appealing. That's, right. um, that's the fitness blogs too. It's the, the for yeah. for men in particular. Uh, yeah. We're targeted with dudes with six packs that are ripped yep. and shredded on the beach, with yep. their beautiful tan skin and their sexy model friends who are all like, "I'm sponsored by this company, hustling because it's Monday." And then it's them and their yeah. their Instagram stories at the club with those same sexy models. And for us, that's how it's it's that's really how it's targeted. Is it's you too can have a six pack. I'm so so glad you brought that up. I was really going to ask you three how it affects men because everything we've talked about really affects mostly women. But so you're saying for men, it's a lot about fitness. It's fitness dudes, and I always wonder. Like, don't you wonder, Greg? You're looking at a dude that's a personal trainer, and he's driving like a Maserati, and I'm like, how the fuck is a personal trainer unless you're like a personal trainer for the stars driving a Maserati? But it's because you know they rent the car for the day or something like that. no, I think I mean I think especially in LA, I think these guys well, are yeah. getting money in LA. Yeah, they, either they, that or they're just on a payment plan, then they're paying oh, they're paying yeah, way they're too much. It. They're know? leasing, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but they're definitely getting money. I mean, for but me, yeah. more than anything, like all my 
the thing that I see this, and this is with this friend that I mentioned earlier, who's really my only connection to this culture, but for him and all his friends, every post is like, got something big coming up, making yep. money moves. This is my new company. This is my new effort. You know, making like, moves. Uh, yeah, like every, every time they do something even mildly productive, there's a post about it to let us know how productive they are. And uh, I guess that's the real thing for me. But on, honestly, like, I kind of just shake my head at it, man. I really don't feel like it affects me that negatively other than just makes me more cynical. But it doesn't make me feel like, wow, I wish I was starting my own CBD company. In the Hulu documentary, and I, I just don't know because I didn't watch it. They There's like Aziz Ansari. Is it from Parks and Rec or something where there's the company that he runs called like 20 something? Yeah, yeah, Where it's yeah. like their their business doesn't actually produce anything, but their business is just to do business. And that's one of the things that in the Hulu documentary it kind of talks about. That that's what this culture is kind of reproducing. Is it's like the business that we're all talking about is just to like talk about doing business. And what you talk about is how you're going to do more business. And then that's just talking about more business. And it's just – it's like I'm hustling to hustle to hustle to hustle. But what am I actually producing? Well, you're just producing yeah. the sort of well, illusion don't give a shit of about the fantasy that. of doing business or whatever. But the, the, I guess the, I would, the one I wanted to say to Claire's point how she's kind of – I don't want to use the word resigned, but like resigned <laughs> to the fact that she's never going to be wealthy. But all these people that I know, the people on Instagram know they are constantly maintaining the illusion that they're around the corner from that private jet. And wealthy people suck. <laughs> <laughs> they do. They have, they're, they're, they're corny. They're all know. germaphobes. They suck. I don't know anyone who's wealthy enough to have a, a private jet. Wealthy, yeah. Wealthy people are assholes. Hey, Claire, you, you were asking about how this really affects dudes. I would say the single. The best test case for this is Dan Bilzerian. Do you know who Dan Bilzerian is? I do not. He's one of the more famous influencers, or at least he was, on Instagram. And uh, he basically is really famous. He's like this big jacked dude. And his backstory is supposedly that he won all these millions playing poker. But people are kind of like, well, maybe it was family money. They don't really know how he got this money. But he does live a pretty lavish lifestyle. He's got a mansion in fucking the Hollywood Hills or something like that, multiple ones. But he's always posing with big guns, fast cars, and super hot chicks. And he'll, like, literally have photos of him, like, just waking up in the morning. And it's, like, four hot chicks, like, naked laying on top of him. And it's like, this is my life. That's how it is attacking men. It's Dan Bilzerian's Instagram page. Those dudes are the saddest pack of shit ever, man. <laughs> he wants to be married so bad. He wants a kid. He's so <laughs> those, all those guys are so sad. Man, man. I, uh, this is gonna seem maybe a little bit crass, but like if you're watching life or like kind of life porn like that, like why not just watch real porn? You know? <laughs> <laughs> like, what's the value of like following these Instagram models if you can just watch porn? What's the difference? And if you're so happy about that life, why you want to show it off so bad? Yeah. If you're that happy, if you're having so much of a good time, why does the camera have to be so crystal clear? And why must mm. you show it to everybody if you're really having a good time? And when I'm having a good time, I don't even think about my shit, camera. Yeah. I don't think about my phone at all when I'm so really having this. fun with my friends. So Bill Zarian actually went on Joe Rogan like a year and a half, two years ago and talked oh, about this exact thing. Sign. I know. And he talked about this exact thing. And he said, he said like, he's listening. He's like, I got bored. He's like, you do get bored. He literally said that. So 
it was actually really interesting, even though he doesn't like, he's not like self-loathing or anything like that. I did feel a moment of vulnerability where he said, hey man, like, look, I know I'm living the dream that all of the men everywhere around the world, millions of, he's got tens of millions of followers that they think that they want. He said, but I got fucking bored with it. And so I went and I wanted to find some new adventure, some new thing to stimulate dopamine. Because once you become programmed to one stream of incitement, it doesn't really incite you anymore. Go help some people, asshole. <laughs> There's tons of people starving out there, need a crib. Go help somebody. Ugh. This country, we deserve to get bombed. <laughs> oh, God. All right. How real and Greg is being on that. this episode. <laughs> All right. On that, I'm going to close it, guys. Hey, guys, this is a really fun experiment. Um, I'm glad we decided to do this. Um, Guys, let us know. Uh, send us an email at movies at wisecrack.co or give us a call at 213-534-8807. Let us know what you think about uh, this episode, this experiment. If you want us to do more documentaries, more current event stuff, uh, whatever you guys want. Uh, we are still doing Nicolas Cage Month. We just released uh, our newest episode <laughs> on adaptation. It's on the RSS feed right now. So we did not do a break in Nicolas Cage Month. Don't worry. We're actually doing, actually also have a exciting announcement. So if you watched our Nicolas Cage video on uh, our main channel, on the Wisecrack channel a couple weeks ago, we uh, cited this author named uh, Lindsey Gibb, who wrote this whole book about uh, Nicolas Cage called National Treasure. And uh, she will be joining us on the podcast next week. So I'm really excited about that. So anyway, wrapping it up, where can we find you guys on the internet? Greg. Oh, um, you can find me on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I just talked about this shit. <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at Greg the Grouch. You can find me on Instagram at Greg Comedy. Uh, my website is gregcomedy.com. I'm a comedian. Uh, yeah, check And check out. out your podcast. Yeah, check out my podcast, Black Stage, on the Wisecrack Network. Claire. You can find me on Twitter at The Claire Report. And oh, did, you change, did you change your name? I like it. Thanks. Uh, just today. Yeah, it was my old, like, private Twitter, and I was like, I'm just going to merge my Twitters. So I did. Cool. Yeah. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden. Uh, you can find me on Instagram, AUS underscore HAY. I'm going to actually start doing Instagram stuff because you can't not promote yourself through instant Instagram and shit like that. I don't know. It, whatever. I'm, I'm Austin, a if I don't see an Instagram of you in a Maserati this week, I'm going to be real disappointed. I'm making Show them that guns, fuck you Austin. podcast yeah, money, real, motherfuckers. Man. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see that um, headshot, I also do a Austin. philosophy podcast called Owls at Dawn uh, that you can check out. And then uh, I do a, a movie podcast with my homie Kier. He's a director in London called I Dig This Movie. And we have a new episode coming out on the uh, 1994 classic Little Giants. Oh, cool. Nice. I remember that movie. Nice. Uh, you can find me on my Instagram, which is all photos of dogs. <laughs> at Father of Woody or on anything Wisecrack related. So, gonna wrap it up. Thanks, guys. See you next time. Peace. <laughs>